you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover. Welcome to Cover to Cover Joblin's Bistro. I am your host for the next half hour here on Cover to Cover. Today's show, I'm going to be interviewing Sabrina Strings, who wrote the book, uh, her research, Fearing the Black Body. And I'm going to do the introduction to this here. The original epidemic. Actually starving. A prominent New York man dies in sight of food. Why could this be so? This dramatic, if slightly awkward, headline appeared in the February 16, 1894 edition of the New York Times, atop an article that began, Thousands of men and women in New York are starving, although they have plenty of money to buy the best food. Sabrina has written and did research on how America's narrative has positioned itself to celebrate a body near death. We look at that in our models. We look at that in the starving epidemic of lately in the last couple of years of hearing how particularly in middle-class America, girls are trying throwing up their food, starving to death, close to death until intervention has to happen. And then we also look at at the same time in her research have studied how the very opposite in black women, how this fear of black women's bodies and how the two intersect. Welcome to the show, Sabrina. Thank you so much for having me on. You're absolutely welcome. So what took you to your research? That's a great starting point. And actually it was, something that my grandmother had puzzled over for many years. In fact, my grandmother was born in the Jim Crow South in the 1930s and traveled west to California as part of the Great Migration in 1960. In the South, where she grew up, not a whole lot of people in her black community were concerned about dieting. But when she arrived in her integrated community in California, she met a lot of white women who were on diets. And so she thought about this for many years. And in the 1990s, when I was a teenager, she would often pull me into conversation saying, why are white women dying to be thin? And as a child, my response was usually, I don't know. But years later, I thought about it and I realized my grandmother is asking a very important question. And it's something that I want to spend my time investigating. And so you... One of the questions I have is how has the image of fat black women as savage and barbarous in art, philosophy, and science, and as a diseased in medicine been used to both degrade black women and discipline, which I found that were disciplined white women? How is those yes. images? Yes. How did that happen? So we often think that fat phobia is rooted in health concerns. 
But in my research, I found that it, it was actually uh, rooted in two things. First, the triangle slave trade, and then next, Protestantism. So with the slave trade came the discourse that black people were inherently sensuous, that we enjoy sex and food. And for this reason, black people tend to be prone not only to sexually transmitted diseases, but also to obesity. So this was part of the race science that existed since at least the 18th century and really ramped up during the 19th century. Protestantism suggested that uh, good, upstanding Christians were never gluttonous. And so overeating was a sign of immorality. And in the United States, these combined ideas that fatness was evidence of blackness and also immorality were used to encourage white women to stay on diet because it was very important for them to show that they were morally upright and also part of the racial elite. So you used the word, uh, the the word I used was disciplined white women. But at the same time, I'm also thinking it's it's a form of control. It's a form of controlling what you put in your mouth, when you put in your mouth, and what kind of outcome you want for your own physical being to be noticed in the world. That's right. And go on. So for, you, you blink, you came out, you're, you're going in and out with your cell phone. Hello. Okay. Um, hello. Yes, I'm, you're here. Hello. Yes. Okay. Um, yes. So frequently when we think about food, we often like, prioritize trying to be as spare as possible. You know, don't get me wrong, there's a value to moderation in the various things that we like to eat, but we definitely should be allowed to enjoy chocolate and croissants and coffee and pizza, all of the things that make life worth living, really. And so a lot of the conversation, I think that you're exactly right, Javelin, um, centers around this idea that health has to trump pleasure. When in fact, you can be healthy and then also enjoy food. But this sort of question of trying to control women's bodies by controlling their appetites, that was central to the conversation surrounding what people should and should not eat in the 19th century. And so the image of the fat body, I think about the, in terms of black women, the mammy figures, the auntie mama, and the roles they played in the narratives in Hollywood as one that is serving and taking care of and bowing to um, whatever master or narrative that was happening. And I think about one of the most famous ones is uh, with Scarlett O'Hara where she was being put in a corset and it was never small enough. It was like tie it tighter and tighter for the waist to be maybe 20 inches. And the brutality that that is on the body. And so your research is really speaking to that, that here we have on one hand, women, black women whose bodies are are very comfortable being full and and enjoying uh, what their body is craving to eat. And on the other hand, you have a near, which is being demonized. And yet on the other hand, you have white women who are being controlled by a narrative that says you can't have, you cannot have control or access to your body. With do you see any movement that this is changing as you began your research and you're putting it out there for women to look at, to think about, more critically about their lives and their bodies? 
Yes, I think that there is a change that's taking place right now. First, I want to speak to what seems to be kind of a false change, which is the sudden prizing in the mainstream media of um, voluptuous physiques that we might call thick or slim thick. When we look at the women who are representing that, um, especially because frequently they're part of the Kardashian-Jenner complex, you will notice that there's only certain parts of the body that we allow to be full, the breasts, the legs, the buttocks, but never the waist. And so it's still a way of controlling women's bodies, even though it's slightly larger. I think that there is, however, a very encouraging movement going on, especially in the Bay Area, uh, that's called Health at Every Size or Haze in which women of all shapes and sizes are simply embracing their figures and attempting to live healthy and productive lives. What do you, th- out of your research, and uh, you know, back to the time when your grandmother was having these dialogues and questioning out loud very critically about after moving here to California, why are white women on diets? In that time frame of from then and in present time, have you thought about, how empowering it would be if women actually were to think about their bodies in a way that benefited their personal life, their personal family life, and to take back that narrative of their body or reclaim it for the first time. Like, What, what do you think would happen energetically in the public arena if women literally sat down, maybe say, go through your book, Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, and understand that part of that, that a large part of that was racial phobia, but also in that phobia was then the control of the white woman's body. What do you think that knowledge that transformation could look like in a public in a public spaces. If women could come to accept their bodies and not focus on dieting or trying to get various surgeries to have, you know, augmentations or minimalizations, but if we just accepted our bodies and did what we thought was best in forms of self-care and healing, that would be an absolute revolution. When we look at the beauty industry right now, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. And a good part of that industry involves people buying dietary aids, joining various clubs to lose weight, or getting plastic surgery. And if we think about all of the money, the time, and the energy that women of all racial ethnic backgrounds put into trying to look a particular way, we could be doing so much more with our lives if we would simply come to terms with the fact that we are living in these bodies, our bodies do an incredible amount for us, but inevitably they are going to age. And so we simply need to confront the reality that these bodies are precious and we should enjoy them. I think you're absolutely right on that because if if you wake up in the morning and, and I'm speaking to women and men listening to this here, and if the one of the first things you think about is weighing yourself, or in the evening when you're finishing your day and you're saying to yourself, well, I shouldn't eat that, I shouldn't do this, those are a lot of don'ts and do's, and it sort of regulates how you want to move as opposed to saying, do I want that? Am I hungry? And what am I hungry for? And so that in itself would be empowering to take back your own body, how revolutionary that would be. So you cover a lot of wonderful subjects inside of your research. Tell us a story about, because a lot of people don't know this story, about Sarah Bartman, known as the hot and tot Venus. Tell us about that and that impact of racial and sexual sovereignty, placing her beyond the pale of white skin, European norms of beauty. 
Sarah Bartman was born in South Africa uh, in the Cape. And this was toward the end of the 18th century. She was an entertainer. Like, that was what she did to make money in South Africa. And there was a European man who saw her and sort of engaging her various dances to um, titillate the various soldiers who were stationed at the Cape. And he decided to purchase her um, because she was, in fact, owned as a slave in the colony there. She purchased, he purchased her from her handler and took her to first London and then Paris to put her on display. The point of him bringing her there was to be able to show what many people were describing as the iconic representation of an African woman's body. So when you would see bills of Sarah Bartman in London and in Paris, they would talk about the fact that she was three yards and three quarters round. So the notion that she was um, rather large and that she was also very sexual was what titillated the Europeans and drew the audiences to her shows. She became recognized um, as the hot and top Venus or the epitome of black femininity and beauty throughout the Western world. And this is how she was described for many years, even up until her death in the uh, 18-teens. Um, she was regarded as the sole black woman that many Europeans saw and the iconic representation of what it means to be a black woman. In your research, you also take us into where religion plays a part of this. You, tr you trace it back to in terms of how we see our body, how these, these, these narratives impact our lives. And you talk about the in terms of the art. So you have religion, you have art. Art has shaped and reflected society's views on beauty, the feminine body, and race. How did artists like Rubens, who favored representations of plump women, to get a Gainsborough, who commemorated the slender as beautiful, influence the relationship between race and feminine ideals? That's actually a great place to start with Rubens, because many of us are familiar with Rubens' iconic renderings of the Three Graces, which were three voluptuous European women dancing underneath a tree. Or maybe they've seen his work, Venus at the Mirror, which shows uh, yet another white woman uh, represented as a goddess this time with long, flowing blonde hair, um, slightly swept aside so that you might get a glimpse of her undulating backside, right, her curves. In this very same image, the Venus at the mirror, we also have a representation of a very small black girl. Dark skin, slender physique, short, and with kinky hair. And she was supposed to represent a counterpoint to the abundance and beauty and voluptuousness of white women, which was what was idealized in the Renaissance and then also the Baroque period in which Rubens was painting. But we see that largely as a result of this race science, um, by the late 18th century, when we have the rise of someone like a Thomas Gainsborough, the women that he drew were aristocratic women who were very slender. And it was clear that he was trying to represent them in their actual state. Because by this time in places like England, it had become a very clear trend that women were trying to slim down. And part of their rationale, as they articulated many of them in their diaries, was that they wanted to lose weight because it was the Christian thing to do, but then also it was racially proper. 
We're listening to Sabrina Strings here on Cover to Cover Jalvin's Bistro and her latest, her work that she has out here now, Fearing the Black Body, is out. And also, Sabrina, uh, I talked with your publicist and uh, he shared that you'd be willing to offer up at least three copies of your book to our listening audience, those that are interested in understanding the relationship between fat phobia and fearing the black body, the racial origins of fat phobia? Well, that sounds great. Yes, let's do it. Absolutely. So if listening audience, uh, we're going to take a musical break in about uh, 30 seconds. But think about if you'd like to explore this wonderful, intense research that goes from the studies of art and the subject matter through science of the subject matter of everyday movement through life in the subject matter. So we're going to take a quick break, music break, and we're going to come back and continue talking with Sabrina Strings. <laughs> We now take you to the <coughs> White House. Welcome back to Cover to Cover. I'm talking with Sabrina Strings, uh, Fearing the Black Body, research she's done, the racial origins of fat phobia. Sabrina, how was thinness used to differentiate between a supposed hierarchical racial difference between Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the U.S. and other Europeans like the Irish, Polish, Italian, and Russians? One of the interesting things that developed as a result of my writing this book is that I became a scholar of Irish American history, although that was not my original intention. But it was fascinating for me when doing research on simple representations of black women that oftentimes Irish women would appear in the data. I was confused by that. And then I did additional research and found that in the 19th century, especially surrounding the years of the Great Famine, so approximately 1845 to 1855, there was a famine in Ireland that sent a lot of Irish people out of the country and to the United States. That particularly at that time, there was the view that the Irish people were unassimilable. They were not like Anglo-Saxons. And one of the easiest ways to be able to make the claim that a person was not white was to suggest that they were somehow racially related to black people. So in the 19th century, one of the things that you would commonly see were cartoons or articles, sometimes even written in prestigious publications, describing uh, Irish women as part black and as swarthy or as obese. You know, when I listen to you, Sabrina Strings, what I'm hearing is, that almost on every level of our education around our body, the the level of narratives that we're informed, as you said, a cartoon uh, in art and paintings. And now in reading your work, I also understand even down to the cereal, Kellogg. Everybody knows Kellogg. What how men of science, including esteemed serial pioneer Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, 
promoted dieting philosophies based on racist beliefs and agendas and continued to do through dieting books, popular media, and even medical journeys, journals. Take us into that story of your research. The interesting thing about John Harvey Kellogg is that he actually was not that interested in becoming a purveyor of breakfast cereals. Um, that happened almost incidentally, and yet that's the main way in which we remember him. His primary aim as a physician, because he did have a medical degree, was he wanted to reform the current figure at the time of American women. Because by the time at which he was writing, which was the late 19th century and early 20th century, Americans had had already several decades of being on these diets, showing temperance at the table because it was right, it was the right thing for Protestants to do, and also maintaining trim physiques because it was the racially appropriate thing to do. So Kellogg stepped in and he said, our women have gotten far too slim. Uh, what we need to do is we need to figure out a way to reform them because by reforming them, we will actually make them a sturdier stock for the reproduction of future generations. So we can already hear that he's trafficking in this eugenic discourse. So Kellogg, publishing in the Journal of the American Medical Association, publishing in the American Journal of Public Health, wrote very frequently about the need for women to actually gain, gain weight by eating the proper foods. Now, when he said women, he was talking about white women. He was not at all concerned about women of color because being a eugenicist, Kellogg believed that the lower races would simply die off and we wouldn't need to worry about them. So it was a very interesting way in which Kellogg was still, like many men of science, attempting to modify and regulate women's bodies, but doing it in a way that to the modern um, viewer would be considered counterintuitive because we're used to hearing doctors tell people to lose weight. You know, without having enough time to really think about it, but as I'm listening to uh, Sabrina Strings talk about her research and the different ways in which she approached it, things she stumbled upon that shocked her uh, within the research and she moved further, is that the control of women's bodies, the narrative around race in this culture, and some, it's all intertwined. I'm thinking now about the 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 level of women's bodies in regards to abortion, that same sense of uh, the narrative of control. It just it pops in my head as I'm listening to you that all of this is interconnected. And then we, so we've talked about art, we've talked about science, we've talked about uh, the cartoons. You even do research to talk about something that many people for years turn to women for guidance, and that's, Women magazines, from Harper's Bazaar and Cosmopolitan to Ladies' Home Journal. Even in there where women, the space where women would order the books, have them come to their house. Tell us what you discovered there. It turns out that women's magazines were one of the most visible proponents of the slender aesthetic. Of course, today we think about this and we're like, well, we see this all the time in women's magazines. But I think... In prior generations, there had been the assumption that women's magazines had gotten this sort of crazy idea from somewhere else. But it turns out that women's magazines beginning in the 19th century with a magazine that we don't often remember today but was very famous at the time called Godey's Ladies Book would instruct women on the way to eat to prove that they were good Christians and also part of the elite race. And so this ideology 
was really helping Godey's to sell their magazines. And because it was such a popular topic, it was taken up by Harper's Bazaar in the 1860s and then in later generations in Cosmopolitan as well. And of course, as your listeners may know, they haven't actually moved too far away from that position even today. They wouldn't use words like, you know, Anglo-Saxon superiority, and they wouldn't talk about Protestant restraints, but they are concerned overwhelmingly with dieting and thinness. So what is the, so a lot of this, your work is, is based also in the, the component of race, which is very strong inside of your research. What is the black community doing to combat the vilification of black women's appearance in white mainstream media? And how is black culture reclaiming the thickness in the black community? And most notably, I think about Sabrina Williams. The At one point, there was a cartoon that was created of her that, that gave her features that were not her own to try to vilify her. Uh, talk about what you have found out, what uh, what can and what is the black community doing to combat the vilification, and even Michelle Obama when they had a cartoon sketch of her. So the, bringing these two up for our listening audience to say, oh, yeah, this is, yeah, that makes complete and utter sense. And yes, this is happening. And yes, I have seen these diet controls in different popular magazines. And yes, I have seen cartoons that, oh my gosh, I didn't know about Kellogg cereal. Oh no, I didn't know that. So that we can begin to say yes and no and think about critically so that we can take ownership of our body the next time we weigh ourselves. So what is the black community doing to combat the vilification of black women's appearance in white mainstream media? You know, since the 1960s and 70s, with the growth of the black power movement, there was also a smaller movement, the Black is Beautiful movement, in which African-Americans said, you know, this is the moment in which we start to prize our own kinky hair, our dark skin, even, you know, our noses, our lips, and yes, our curves. And so there was a very clear motivation um, during the combined civil rights and black power movement for black people to say, this is us. We are beautiful. Black is beautiful. Accept us as we are. Today, we're entering a trickier time because, unfortunately, obesity science is suggesting that it's very important for people to keep their body mass indices low between 18 and 25 and that black women have the highest rates of obesity, according to body mass index. Um, and therefore, black women must reform their figures. I think that we have a long way to go as a community to be able to remind people that actually it is possible to be healthy, even having a BMI above 25 or 30. There are plenty of studies that attest to this. And so we have to be willing to critique the scientific ideas that because they have the word science attached to them, make it seem like it's utter truth. But in reality, it's another way in which we're continuing to put black women back into the historical position of being degraded based on their body size. Out of your research, did you come to your own conclusion that might not exist academically? But why is it important that we live in a narrative that tries to contain and vilify black women's bodies? I think that the vilification of black women is such an important tool for regulating all women. Um, I think it's what, if, if we can live in a society in which there's a group of people that are uh, poor, that have limited access to necessary resources, that have long faced discrimination, but 
alongside this reality, there is also a rhetoric suggesting that it's their fault for some reason. It's their fault because they ate too much is frequently the reason that arises. Then we somehow give the entire society a pass. Society is not required to do something for black women in this case because they're not willing to do things for themselves, right, such as be on a diet. And so it's such an important tool to uh, control all women because when we degrade one group and we make it seem as if their circumstances are entirely their own fault, that can be used to tame, control, and discipline other groups to give them the rationale to actually do things like dieting. All right, you've been listening. Thank you so much, Sabrina. Sabrina Strings and Fearing the Black Body, the research she's done, the racial origins of fat phobia. If you'd like, you can call the station. She's given away three copies. Uh, I think it's important work. Once again, cover to cover, Javelin's Bistro. Thank you, Sabrina. Reporter and documentary filmmaker John Carlos Frey, winner of the Polk Award for his investigative work, has just published Sand and Blood, America's Stealth War on the Mexico border. It is a powerfully damning, long-overdue account of the terror being unleashed by the U.S. Border Patrol on countless impoverished migrants and refugee families from South and Central America seeking safety, jobs, decent lives. John Carlos Frey will speak Tuesday evening, June 25th, 7.30 at St. John's Presbyterian Church, 2727 College Avenue in Berkeley. Miguel Guerrero of KPFA's Rockin' the Rebellion will host this wheelchair-accessible KPFA benefit. Tickets at Progressive Bookstores and BrownPaperTickets.com. That's for John Carlos Frey, Tuesday, June 25th.